0: Yeah, welcome back to the Lars Resort. Uh, still a podcast with me and Lars and brought to you by Betson It is Wednesday. Wednesday, uh, the, the day after after Man City beat Brentford, just about. Not not an amazing game, but we'll get to that. And 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 it carries on. I think we we have to start. We have to start with the with a title chase check-in, title battle checking cuz on I think it looks that yeah, looks exciting because we just had a weekend where Manchester City dropped a few points where Arsenal and Liverpool both looked very very convincing and then City did win that game against uh, Brentford but they didn't blow them away so you know it, it gives it gives rivals reasons to hope I think and and the odds have changed a little bit since last week you know this about me I do love to consult uh, the, the betting markets and and Manchester City are still favourites when I checked this afternoon at at a price of one ninety, but that's up from what was it one sixty five last week. Liverpool are now two eighty eight, Arsenal are now four fifty, all with the bets on. So that's been a clear change there since we talked about it with with Peter last week, and I, I guess. There are some doubts creeping in over Manchester City, just a little bit there. They dropped points against Chelsea, like I said, and then they only beat Brentford by one goal, and and that was basically because Christophe Ayo just picked a really bad time to fall down. I mean, we all fall down now and again in our lives. Uh, be, what you don't want to do is fall down when Aling Holland is kind of lurking and you're trying to stop him from scoring a goal. I am sure Christophe Ayo will be hearing about that at the next international uh, camp. Um, So the question is, are City in trouble? And I saw a few hot takes on this after the Chelsea game, suggesting that, wow, Pochettino and Chelsea have found the way to stop City, that they nullified them. And, well... Did Did Pochettino find a special and magical way of stopping Man City? Well, no. I tend not to think so, because Manchester City did have 31 shots in that game. I know I, know I kind of built this up. Maybe Man City are wobbling. But then, of course, if you watch the game, the reality is that they were very, very good. And if they play that game again 100 times, I think they'll win it most of them, but we do this in football. The outcome bias is, is strong in us. It always is. Um, I remember my favorite case of just incredible outcome bias is uh, really all the way back from 2014, January 2014, 10 years ago, when, when Sam Allardyce was the boss of West Ham and he had held Jose Mourinho's Chelsea to a 0-0 draw at Stamford Bridge and Mourinho complained about Chelsea's very defensive football um, it was, the Ministry of Irony took a day off. Uh, but, but there's a fan, very famous clip of Big Sam uh, from the post-match press conference where he's kind of giggling away and saying that Mourinho, he, he can't take it because we out-tacticked him, we outwitted him, he said. Now, I, I remember this game being pretty one-sided, so I looked up the numbers, and, and, and Chelsea had 39 shots in that game, and West Ham had one. <laughs> So and I'm not I'm not sure I've seen that before, outside of like cup competitions where there are a couple of leagues between the two. Now, none of this matters, but the extent to which anyone remembers that game, you'll likely remember it for Allardyce being funny and talking about out tacticing Mourinho. Out tacticing. That's what he said. Out tacticking Not sure that's a word, but that's what he said. That that's what people remember. Not so much that, you know, Chelsea completely wiped the floor with West Ham but missed a bunch of chances. Uh out tactic, I feel, implies um, that's things somehow went to plan for your team. Was it Big Sam's plan all along to let the opponent take 39 shots? I'm thinking no. Anyway, big digression for no real reason. I'm just saying the outcome bias, how we remember things, uh, can alter, can, you know, differ from how the games actually went. And, and City had so many chances against Chelsea in this game. On a normal Alling-Holland day, that would have ended very, very differently. Uh, Holland, as we know still not 100% back in his rhythm uh, and also lost his grandmother uh, the the other week. Uh, He's he's very close with his family as I understand it. He speaks with them a lot so I'm I'm sure that will have affected him uh, in, in quite a serious way even he has the odd off day, not too many of them. There, he's been, there have been some moments this year where he's been a little bit less efficient in front of goal than what we've been used to seeing. He's still pretty much on his XG. So it's not like he's underperforming his XG by any significant margin, but, but he is uh, as he's such a good finisher that he usually overperforms his XG and he hasn't really been doing that this season. Now, I suspect that just means that, uh, that, that more is coming. Uh, that that would be my suspicion. I'm very, very hesitant, uh, to bet against uh, the, the giant boy from from Jaren. Um, now, of course, for him, it then mattered quite a lot that he he got that goal against Brentford, and this time helped by Christoph Eyer falling over. A very much a tale, that game, very much a tale of two big Norwegians, one that fell over and one that did not. Uh, and, and I was watching this game, and... Brentford made it really difficult for City. Brentford have obviously played City and Liverpool now within the space of a couple of days. And while they've lost both of those games, you can also just see clearly what they do well. And and really, both of those games turned more on individual mistakes and sort of slack moments uh, defensively, I'd say, than anything else they really missed Ethan Pinnock uh, he's he's a big part of their defensive sort of unit but I enjoyed Jürgen Klopp's description of playing against Brentford he said uh, everything is set up to make you look rubbish <laughs> like they're very good at like not letting teams play in the areas they want to play in and, and, and block them off uh, Guardiola went into detail a little bit more which I enjoyed he talked about how close their forwards get to your back line and, and to Rodri so it's make, it makes it harder to build up your passing game uh, and, and Guardiola talked about how Brentford will basically let you go out wide if you want to and compress the spaces in the middle and invite you to go wide but then if you want to put crosses in they have a bunch of like giant defenders who can who can deal with that all day. So they're very very clever Brentford and and it took a a very literal slip up from the Brentford defence for, for City to eventually get past them. And, and for Liverpool as well, there were some really nice touches there. I mean, the Jota header to Nunez for his chip, was the, that was a great goal. Alexis McAllister's first touch to go past the defender was really high-class uh, class stuff, but they also got the job done. Bit of a pyrrhic victory for Liverpool, that, with them picking up another couple of injuries. Jota, in particular, looking like a bad one. I Guess what you'd say about Liverpool, coming on to them? We've been saying all season that, like, well, Liverpool are good, but they're kind of a work in progress. Do we even know what their strongest 11 is? But that's actually been one of the strengths that they have genuine strength in depth this season. It may not be totally obvious what the first choice midfield is for Liverpool or what the first choice front three is when everyone's fit. But that also does mean that you can take a couple of players out of the team, and the lineup is still very, very strong. Uh, Jota came back to full fitness just as Salah went off to the AFCON. Now Salah's back in and fit, just as Jota gets injured. So you have, you know, genuine options there. Losing Sobosla has been a blow to the midfield, but you have guys who can come in and, and can do stuff. I think having Endo back is, is very useful. You know, he's not the most amazing player in the world, but you can use him as the deeper player in that midfield, and that frees up Alexis McGallister to be a little bit more attacked which is what he's actually best at he's he's done such a good job as the sort of a stand-in solution in that slightly deeper role and he does ping balls around and it's all very good but you forget that he did score 10 goals from midfield for Brighton last season yeah okay there were some set pieces in there but he, he does have a real attacking threat when he's able to go forward and with Endo in the team I think he'd frees him up to do more of that Um Liverpool of course also, giving up some chances the other way. Uh, that Seems to be consistent. Brentford scored a goal. Um, th- they've often gotten away with it a little bit, Liverpool. If you look at actual goals conceded this season, Liverpool have, at this point in time, conceded 24 uh, to Man City's 26 and Arsenal's 22. So actually fewer than, than Man City. But if you look at the XG against... Arsenal have conceded an XG of 18 so far this season, the lowest in the league. City are at 23.7, and Liverpool are at 31. So if you rank the league according to XG conceded, it's Arsenal, City, and Liverpool, though there is a bit of a gap between Arsenal, who are the tightest defence, and Liverpool, who are still there. But then do you know who's fourth? Everton, somehow, which is a bit mad, but I guess Everton's problems are very much down the other end of the pitch. And, and yeah, he can be annoying, but I think you have to acknowledge... Sean Dyche has done a good job there. Uh, you know, if, if not for those pesky points deductions, you know, they'd be, they'd be looking very, very comfortable. Um, now, since we're looking at this, actually, looking at the XG, I've got the window here in, in front of me. If you look down the other end of the table, that's kind of interesting. The two teams that have conceded the highest XG are Sheffield United, obviously, and Luton, perhaps less, obviously, but there they are. Who's been the third worst? West Ham, <laughs> actually, and we'll get to that. Who's been the fourth worst? Newcastle. Yikes! Because of their complete sort of defensive collapse this winter. Also a subject we'll get to shortly. Anyway, two results from City now that don't look amazing on paper and and didn't always look great as the games were were going on. Though in fairness, they they were pretty good second half against uh, Chelsea. But the point is they're producing a lot of shots. They had a combined 56 shots against Chelsea and Brentford, which seems like a big number. So, So I'm not really worried. I don't think this means that... the the, the Death Star has stalled. I think it's still kind of rounding, getting around the planet, and and, and getting the laser ready. But at least the fact that they drop two points it gives the the opponents, uh, well, it gives the chasing pack some semblance of you know there, there's a chance here. You know we can we can we we can maybe catch up with them uh, if we keep going. Uh, lastly, in the title check-in, we have to mention Arsenal. I think you're just just kind of casually putting five past Burnley, uh, to which people will say yes but it's only Burnley, and that is true. Just as last season, it was only West Ham. But of course, before that, they beat Liverpool. And and the reason for optimism with Arsenal is clearly that they have a whole different level of control over games now compared to last season. L- last season, as we'll remember, they, they were swashbuckling and, and fabulous before the World Cup, and then their defence just kind of stopped working completely after the World Cup. And, and it all seemed very emotionally charged, maybe too charged. you remember Arteta's drawing of the heart and the brain holding hands? I think possibly last season there was a bit more heart than brain uh, at work. Uh, this season again, lowest XG against so far in the leagues, they're doing really, really well at uh, restricting the opponents from creating chances. And you have Declan Rice, the, the, the former Ireland international, now England international, multinational Declan, is is doing a fantastic, fantastic job in midfield, obviously, and has just added a physicality to that, and no, they're great. Um, the fact that they've not scored 11 goals in two games, I do think that is probably a little bit more to do with their opponents just being demoralized and terrible rather than Arsenal doing anything different and, and brilliant in those games. But it builds confidence, you know, for the players to experience all those goals going in, you know, Saka playing really well, Odegaard is obviously brilliant. Even Havertz scored a nice goal, you know, I'm sure that was good for his confidence. So so lots of good vibes in the land of Arsenal at the moment. And then again, if you look at the XG difference in the league so far... Arsenal have got the best underlying numbers overall in the league this season. They've got the best XG difference, which is kind of interesting. And yes, okay, they've got two fewer points than than Liverpool in the league. But I, I don't know if I, if, if I was going to decide, I don't actually think City will win it. I, I personally still think City will win it. But if you decide that you don't think so, I'm not sure the price, like betting wise, should be that much further out on Arsenal than than it is for for Liverpool. I mean, I, I think I see those as being fairly equal in terms of how, how good they are and what their chances are. Of a winning it maybe i'm getting carried away with these last couple of games but no arsenal looking strong and it does look an awful lot like we can have a proper title race exciting times Now, what else? We mentioned Newcastle briefly and for them having the the very dubious honour of having the fourth-worst defensive record in the league this season on XG. And they had another lively game this weekend, a 2-2 against Bournemouth. Lots of chances in either end. Very little control, I thought. And, and, And I was listening to another podcast where they were trying to find a term for the kind of football Newcastle are playing at the moment you know it's been very trendy to add ball to either a name or a word to describe something you know we had Sari ball we have Ange ball now uh, Conte's Spurs team were, we're playing suffer ball apparently now I heard someone say that what's happening with Newcastle under Eddie Howe now is that they're playing psycho ball <laughs> it's just fully unhinged they're playing like they're pressing quite aggressively but, but without really the legs in midfield to, 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 to do it, and with really, really slow defenders who keep getting caught high up the field. It's, it's just a really weird setup. And it's become part of, I mean, I really see this as part of the Premier League drinking game now. I mean, if there is such a thing, if you're watching Premier League highlights and you see like a speedy winger run away from Dan Byrne, you have to take a drink. You know, this is a key part of the Premier League experience right now. Uh, now, Eddie Howe has denied that this was a chaos game. He, he said that they had more control than against Luton. And I guess that's technically true. They they had a little bit more control, but they still conceded a lot of chances. Now, Eddie Howe was asked by the BBC about all these goals going in. And this is like, I don't, uh, please don't, you know, misunderstand me here. I don't mean to like pick holes in what managers say after games because they're very emotional and blah, blah, blah. But I, but I, but I think, I think his answer is interesting because uh, he told the BBC There's nothing drastically different or fundamentally different in how we're playing or how we're preparing. I think sometimes you get these random spells where things can happen and everyone thinks that something is definitely different about what you're doing because we've been very defensively consistent for a long period of time and suddenly, yeah, we haven't been our usual solid selves. The positive is that we're scoring goals and creating chances down the other end. Was um, was Eddie Howe's uh, reply, and I got to tell you, like, without wanting to pick holes, in it, I I don't I don't love that. If I was a Newcastle fan, I wouldn't love that answer, uh, because again, we're dealing with a team. Last season, they had the second lowest XG against in the league, so basically, they had the second best defense in the league last season, and this season they now have the fourth worst. And actually, up until the start of November, they actually had the third best defense in the league, so it started well. But then since the start of November, it's just collapsed. They've actually had the highest XG against in the league, uh, according to our dubious friends at Understat, uh, since the start of of November. So if you have a period of 15 games in which you're suddenly the worst defensive team in the league, I don't love hearing the manager say, well, we're pretty much doing the same stuff as before, and you you just get these random spells. I'm not sure about that. I feel... I may have mentioned this before but he had this tendency at Bournemouth of just going on long spells of defeats or or bad results it should be stressed of course that he did do a brilliant job getting Bournemouth promoted and you know again no one's taken that away from him and he, and he kept them up and for a while and, but it always just worried me how they just kept going in these runs so just to make sure I wasn't misremembering that I actually looked it up and and you, there's a bunch of these there's like if you go to September 2015 Bournemouth go 9 games without winning March 2016 they have 1 win in 10 of which 8 were defeats so 8 defeats in 10 suddenly uh, January 2017 they had 6 defeats and no win wins in nine. So again, one of these long streaks. November 2017, no wins in nine. February uh, 2018, one win in 10. November 2018, they went on a run of just two wins in 14 games, of which 11 were defeats. 11 defeats in 14 games. I could go on, but you catch my drift. You know, periodically his Bournemouth teams would just stop winning football games. They were very streaky and they would have good periods where they would win a few games in quick succession. Pundits on TV would kind of stroke their chin and go, mmm, Eddie Howe. That's the noise they would make. And, 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 and talk about him being a future England manager. Uh, and then Bournemouth would go on these weird runs where they would just lose a bunch of games but no one would care because they're Bournemouth now overall his record at Bournemouth of course great you know got them promoted I'm not saying he did a bad job not at all but I always did wonder why do these streaks keep happening and why, why why can't he snap them now Newcastle definitely went one on one of those streaks over the winter and while they have started picking up some points it's clear that their defense doesn't really work and I don't love hearing Eddie Howe just say, well, we're doing the same stuff as before. Like, if you suddenly go from being one of the best defensive teams in the league to being the worst over, like, it's not a short period of time. 15 games is, like, more than a third of a season. Maybe you got to consider doing things differently. That's all I'm saying, because this that might not fix itself. Uh, It's an interesting time at Newcastle, with the sporting director, Dan Ashworth, being poached by Man United, or being in the process of being poached, he's been put on gardening leave. Uh, You'd expect Newcastle to bring in a new sporting director of some kind. And even if Howe seems to have a strong relationship with the ownership, you know it's logical that a new sporting director is likely to have his own ideas about who should be in charge. So it probably doesn't strengthen his position, to put it that way. Now I don't think he's in trouble. Newcastle, I expect him to get better in the next couple of months. Maybe even launch a late bid for the fifth place, which could be a Championship place, a Champions League place. We'll we'll see if that's possible. But it does make me wonder in the long term, as Newcastle are looking to establish themselves as a Champions League club and eventually challenge for the title if you're going to be the manager of a team with that level of ambition you probably need to be able to identify the problem and fix it quicker when the team suddenly you know stops winning games like don't just go well you know these random spells when lots of goals go in they just seem to happen like this doesn't work that's what gets you fired if you're at a if you're at a bigger club and a more ambitious club um so speaking of bad runs moisey yes David Moyes came out fighting. We, we've we talked too much about David Moyes on this podcast in recent week, I think. Uh, but, uh, but but it is it is fascinating. There's a few facets here I'd like to touch on. Moyes came out fighting, which I guess is more than you can say for his team. Uh, wasn't able to watch the full 90 minutes because of how the broadcasting works, but by all accounts, West Ham were terrible at Nottingham Forest. David Moyes said afterwards that it was a close game, which doesn't appear to have been the case. And, and Moyes also came out fighting his corner, which... In a sense, you can understand. He said, uh, I got the full quotes here. They're kind of interesting. He said, if you're going to be a football manager who has managed 1,200 games, you're going to have tough periods. Let's be fair. West Ham have had long periods of constant growth. And this has been a season of growth all overall too, has it? In, 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 I'm pretty long in the tooth, and it's hard to please everybody. Maybe they want something different. I don't know. Maybe there have been managers who excited them more, but the one sitting here wins more. Now, Okay. Right, I definitely understand the instinct to want to come out and defend your record when you are getting a lot of criticism, as he is, and when his record, you know, by and large, is pretty good. But West Ham have gone eight games without a win, and, and they've been very, very poor in the last two games. But it's easier to make the case for Moyes. You know, finishing sixth, finishing seventh, winning European trophy—that's obviously a very good outcome for West Ham. He's not wrong about them winning games. But it's worth flagging up, like looking at the most recent accounts, you know West Ham have the eighth highest revenue in the league, like it is the big six plus Newcastle and then West Ham. Now they're actually eleventh tw- in terms of wage bills so they're they're running a pretty healthy ship in in that regard. Uh, but the point is that them finishing in the top half it's not exactly miraculous. it's going based on their resources they should be in that group uh, behind the top six and probably Newcastle so so between eighth and a few places further down from there. Uh, is is where West Ham belong? But logically, they finished fourteenth last season. Now they're ninth, and and looking like they may not win a game again for a while <laughs> unless they improve a lot. Now we did talk a lot with Peter about this. I'm not going to bring all of it up again, but but it does feel like the the moistening is is drawing near here. The the moistening is coming. Reports in the press today that West Ham are sounding out possible replacements doesn't feel like a happy camp. And uh, I think the urge, the urge, I'm sure he's feeling to defend his record is understandable. But I'm not sure the timing is great, after they've just played a really, really terrible game. And 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 I think West Ham have also come up against a more fundamental issue, which is sort of what what is the point of, of being a mid-table club in the Premier League? Like you have a fairly established top six there who are financially, you know, pretty far ahead of everyone else. Then you have a team that's owned by the power Saudi Public Investment Fund that's that's there. Uh, And and so for West Ham to regularly make the Champions League anytime soon, it's going to be extremely difficult. It's not impossible, but it's very close to impossible. Now, they're a London club. They're generating a good amount of income from that stadium. uh, And unless they completely mismanage themselves, they should be a solid mid-table club for the foreseeable. They shouldn't get themselves relegated. They'd have to do a lot of dumb things at the same time for for that to happen. But that does raise the question of what exactly is the point? Are we just going to constantly finish eighth and, and, and that's going to be it? No, a lot of uh, observers and pundits and journalists and types get a bit sniffy about the sort of style of play and entertainment. And if David Moyes is fired with his generally positive record, it will be in part befo- befo- because the football is so bad. Uh, a lot of people are going to be sniffy about that, and we're going to have you know poor David Moyes. What has he done wrong? He has. He has a good record. Uh, what has the world come to? What even is style of play? Like, you're going to see all those editorials uh, be be written. But I just think. It is, again, like I said last week, it's okay for fans to want to look forward to watching their team. If you're a massive West Ham fan and and the game is like the highlight of your week, you do your job all day from Monday to Friday, you get to the weekend, and and one of the things that makes your life fun and worthwhile is sitting down and watching your team and and maybe having a few beers... And, and if every time you sit down and watch the team, what you're watching is a team just kind of sitting back, just waiting for the opponent to do something, and then trying to hit the ball in the general direction of a 33-year-old Michael Antonio, like you're allowed to say, actually, this is garbage. You, that's fine. That's a perfectly valid opinion. And, and it, especially when you see the club try to bring in more interesting players... Uh, players that manifestly can do stuff with the ball. And Moyes just almost seeming confused about what to do with them. Just stick them on the wing, I guess. You know. Kudus can go there, Paketa on the other, see if they do something. So I, I definitely think... Uh, mid-table clubs in the Premier League can fall into a kind of existential crisis because our natural instinct is to strive for better and better and bigger uh, but you get to a point where better really isn't an option at least not better in the league it almost isn't possible uh, which I guess is where the Cups can play a big part but then Moyes played a weekend team against Liverpool in the League Cup and went out to Bristol in the FA Cup so that's not great but we always used to make this joke about Everton uh, about how sixth place was like the Everton Cup and I've been I've done live shows with Football Weekly and at some point Max will sort of ask the question what is the point of Everton and you get a big laugh when a team is seemingly permanently stuck in mid table it can start to feel kind of pointless now of course in Everton's case One way out of this existential crisis is that you can have an owner who spends lots of money the club doesn't really have and spends it badly and then is suddenly unable to pick up the tab anymore, landing the club in both FFP problems and in actual problems financially and in a relegation battle. I mean, that has certainly made life more interesting for Everton fans, though probably not better. So if you want to, you can take that as a precautionary tale and tell West Ham fans to be careful what you wish for. You know, David Moyes is is leading you to learn Largely inconsequential mid-table finishes uh, while playing really, really boring football. And that isn't the worst thing that can happen in the world, as we've seen. Uh, These teams who are seemingly stuck in mid-table, they can make some bad decisions... ...and suddenly things are a lot more difficult. But I still come back to this idea that fans are allowed to want to enjoy to watch their team. There's nothing wrong with that instinct. And I think it is more fun to watch a team that tries to play football rather than one that waits for the opponent to try to play football and only really looking to exploit the opponent's willingness to take risks. I mean, if you're going to be stuck in mid-table, there are more fun ways to be stuck in mid-table, is what I'm thinking. Anyway, anyway, I should stop it there. There's already been too much Moyes on this pod, and mostly variations on the same theme. And and really, actually, I guess we should maybe mention the opposite example of the David Moyes experience has been Tottenham this season, which has been kind of wacky and kind of fun. They were significantly less good this weekend against Wolves. Uh, not amazing. And I think the big takeaway from that game is uh, Spurs need their fullbacks uh, with both Poro and Udagi uh, absent and Emerson Royal and Ben Davies in those roles. That that did not work as well as we've used to seeing because, of course, the fullbacks in that system come inside and basically act as midfielders. And it, it, it didn't seem to work as well with with Emerson and Ben Davies in those positions. And I guess that leads us straight back to the discussion that's been had a few times already about Postacoglu. Should he be more flexible? Should he look at his team and say, OK, I don't have these players, so we have to do things differently? Um, I don't know. I quite, again... It's not going to be perfect every time but I would rather follow and watch a team that is expensive and wants to do exciting things on the pitch rather than one that's super super pragmatic and if you're going to get it wrong in in one of those directions I'd I'd rather I'd rather be too chaotic than be too boring if you had to pick pick one of them wolves anyway Continue to be annoying for, for opponents. They've now beaten Man City. They've beaten Tottenham home and away. They've beaten Chelsea home and away. They've gotten draws against Newcastle. Draw a draw against Villa. You know they've only lost. I mean against Arsenal they only lost by one goal. Uh, their two games against Man United they only lost by one goal. So it certainly seems that like in these games against the teams in the top half, Gary O'Neill is very very good at setting that up uh, cleverly so as to annoy their opponent. Anyway, lastly, I think we have to have a chat about Crystal Palace. Uh, because there have been developments at Selhurst Park where Roy Hodgson stepped down which does feel like a sad note uh, for him to end it on I was I was very much enjoying the sort of no F's given Roy who was just speaking his mind constantly and I was kind of hoping we could have him for a few more months leading the team just about to survival and just be annoyed with everyone and be brusque and that would be a fine end to, to Roy's coaching career but he's he's 76 he's had a health scare things weren't going well with the team so it, it made sense for him to step away obviously you know, it's tough for him Palace is his local team You know, he's from Croydon he was a youth player there in the 1960s that's an incredible thing to say out loud about a current Premier League manager but yeah he was a youth player for Palace in the 1960s so I guess in some way it's appropriate that he, his career ends there but uh, it feels like this season just never really got going for Palace they've had the odd good result and performance here and there but they can never really find any kind of consistency I think the persistent injuries to Eze and Olisa has been a huge problem for them, because if you take those two out, there just isn't a lot of creativity left in that team, is there? I remember looking at the lineup for the Brighton game, so they ended up losing 4-1, and you had a back four of of Tyrick Mitchell, uh, Joachim Andersen, Mark Ehey and Munoz, okay? Then in midfield, Jefferson, Lerma, Lee Hughes and Chris Richards, and then Jordan Ayu and Jeff Schlup on either wing, and, and, and Mateta up front, and I'm like, ugh. That, that is not an eleven that inspires a lot of confidence in me, I have to say. I'm not at all convinced that Schlupp, Ayu and Mateta is a front three that, that keeps you comfortably in the Premier League. Without Eze and Olise, it's just very, very uninspiring. We'll see what Oliver Glasner makes of it. Uh, Glasner, interesting character. He, he started his coaching career in the Red Bull system. He was assistant manager to Roger Schmidt, now of Benfica. While well, he was at Red Bull Salzburg, he he made his name with Lask, who he then got to promotion and then into Europe. Then got brought to Germany, got hired by Wolfsburg, uh, finished seventh in the first season there and then fourth. And, and getting Wolfsburg into the Champions League is, is not a small thing, I have to say, that's very impressive. He then fell out with the sporting director and moved on to Frankfurt. Where he won the Europa League in his first season, and then got to the final of the German Cup in his second season, before again falling out with the sporting director and leaving. So he basically he has done well everywhere he's been, and not necessarily on big budgets. Uh, he started out in the Red Bull system, so he has this sort of grounding in this sort of pressing football. He, his teams are are known for being physical and, and aggressive, yes, but he's also flexible. You know, he he's played quite a lot with the back three. He's played a bit with the back four. Uh, When they finished fourth, uh, when he finished fourth at Wolfsburg, a lot of that was very, very direct football because he had Wout Weghorst up front. So they played a lot of long balls up to Big Wout and that got them to the Champions League. So he's not a coach who necessarily has one way of playing that he's obsessed with and that he has to do it like this. And I think at a club like Palace, that should probably be an advantage. Now, it's a curious appointment in one way because I suspect that in some parts of the English media, certainly in, in the English football community, they'll go, well, who is this German man? Whereas in Germany, I'm sure there'll be some surprise that he's gone to Palace, who of course, are not a massive club. After taking Wolfsburg to the Champions League and, and winning the Europa League with Frankfurt, you'd think you could aim higher than that. But it does tell you something about the pulling power of the Premier League. And I wonder... I wonder what he's expecting. You know, Palace tend not to spend a ton of money. They tend to look for talented players in the championship. You know, that's where they got Eze and Elisa from. They've, you know, signed Adam, Adam Wharton, who we mentioned in the in January, and hoping he's the next sort of young championship player they, they get right. Glasner has fallen out with the sporting directors over recruitment in the past. It'll be interesting to see... How the relationship between him and Dougie Friedman, who's the sporting director at Palace, how that's going to work out. So so really everything in his career suggests that he's good at his job, that he's a competent coach and manager. Now whether he's a good fit for Palace in the medium term I think is more difficult to say. In the short term he probably looks at it and thinks, well, Burnley and Sheffield United are going down. So he just needs to make sure he finishes above one out of Luton, Everton, and Nottingham Forest. Which, with potential points deductions coming down the pipeline there, that that, that should be possible. Uh, even with a fairly limited squad. And then you can, of course, retool in the summer and go again. So, if we forget, so, so maybe, maybe that can work. I mean, if we forget for a moment what Palace lack... and and look instead of what they actually have. They've got quite a few physical players and guys who can run and stuff. And given that Glasner's background is in the Red Bull system, you're kind of expecting him to want to press and be aggressive. And they have some players who can do some of that. You know, some of the ingredients are there. But I should stress, he's not as far as I'm aware certainly he's not the sort of Ragnik character or like Jesse Marsh who had like this is the Red Bull way and we're going to press super high and just that's that's the only way I can do he has shown much more flexibility than that uh, Glasner in his career but it- Bad time for Palace, just in general. If you look at who they're missing, Sheik Dukure, who's a busy player in midfield for them, is out for the season. You've got Olisa is missing, Eze is missing, Markei is now missing. I'd say those three are probably Palace's three best players. And and there are very few teams, like, in the bottom half of the Premier League, you can take their three best players out and, and things still look good, you know. It's, it's tricky. And I think the main thing Palace have got going for them right now is that there are definitely two worse teams than them in the league, and there's probably three. The last one's not 100%, but it's almost 100%. I think they they might need some help in the end from the Premier League's independent panel and and have some fines uh, for overspending handed down. But I do think Palace should be fine, but uh, it's an interesting match between those. I'm not mega optimistic in the long term if this this is something that's going to work out for all parties, but it'll be an interesting one to to follow. And he does seem like he's a very good good coach. I've got more. I mean, the last time. They tried sort of. I suppose Patrick Vieira almost doesn't feel like a continental uh, adventure for uh, for Palace because, of course, he, he's so such a familiar face in the Premier League. I was going to say, compared to Frank de Boer, I have a lot more faith in Oliver Glasner. I don't think we're going to have a Frank de Boer episode here, uh, but I do wonder if, in the medium term, if this is a if these uh, if these are well suited to each other, it'll be an interesting one to to follow. Okay, that feels like a good place to end it. Um, I've only just started looking at the games for the weekend for the betting column. We were annoyingly close with the boosted treble this weekend we needed one more goal for either team like one just one goal in the game no matter who got it at Spurs Wolves and then we would have gotten the treble but no um we had success yet again with our old party trick of backing Liverpool to win but not keep a clean sheet that's done well for us this season and you know what I am tempted to to do it again uh, for the cup final I'm actually tempted to go even simpler I mean I mean Liverpool are one sixty with bets on to to lift the trophy, which is fine. It's not super exciting price, but I mean they're they're two fifteen to do it within ninety minutes. And that, that feels pretty generous. I kinda like that. They're a better team than Chelsea. So you would then logically expect them to win What worries me a little bit is that if you look at Chelsea's league games against the top teams this season, they've gotten two draws against Man City, a draw against Arsenal, a draw and a defeat against Liverpool, right? So they played five games against what is now a very clear top three this season, and they've only actually lost one. So so that is food for thought, I think, as much as I think Liverpool are significantly better than Chelsea. Chelsea can be a bit nasty on the counter, as we've seen. And, uh, I mean, both teams to score on its own is at 158. So that's clearly something the market is anticipating. Uh, the thing that makes it tricky to talk about is that we're still a few days out, and we don't know for 100% who's playing. For Liverpool in particular, that that kind of matters. We'll see who plays against Luton this evening. Um If Jarvan Nunez isn't fit to start, for instance, I wouldn't feel as confident at all, even with Salah back in the team, because I think Nunez matters a lot to them. Is there a risk that Liverpool could play a bit cautiously since it's a cup final and they might be missing some players? I mean, I don't really think so. In in 2022, Liverpool were in both the EFL and the FA Cup final, both against Chelsea, and both of those games ended nil-nil. So, so I guess Cup Finals can be funny things. Um, but, but the way Liverpool have been playing this season, I find it very hard to imagine that they'll suddenly revert to caution. It seems out of character, and also I don't think they're very good at it. I'm not sure that would be a good good move. If you look at their recent league form, anyway, uh, both teams to score has landed in all of Liverpool's last six games, and actually all of Chelsea's five games as well. So so these are teams who generally both tend to score and concede. Um, Since the turn of the year, Liverpool have scored, I looked this up, they've scored 38 goals in 13 games. So they're averaging nearly three goals a game since the turn of the year. I do not sh- see just how they get shut out by Chelsea. Even as, as I keep saying, Chelsea are a little bit better than they get credit for. They're not as terrible as, as some of the observers would have you believe. But, but I don't see how they can keep a clean sheet by, against Liverpool. Now, I, I know that cup finals can be slow, and we've seen this before, and that's kind of baked into the odds. But I'm looking at it, and bets on are offering 3.75 on Liverpool to win inside 90 minutes and both teams to score. So nearly four times your stake. For, for for Liverpool to, to win and both teams to score when we know how often that's happened this season uh, I, I just think that's too high if this was a league game you'd be all over that you'd take it at three and less than that even you know Liverpool have got the best attack in the league Chelsea are dangerous on counters I would feel less good about it if Darwin wasn't starting, so maybe hold fire and see what the situation there is. We'll see who plays against Luton, maybe make sure Salah doesn't get injured, that sort of thing. But assuming we don't have any sort of momentous team news between now and the AFL Cup final, I kind of like Liverpool to win sign the 90 and then both teams to score at a price of 3.75 it's a long shot of course but i just think that's a really big price and worth uh, picking up this week and all right now we're definitely at an end but let me just say as the outro music uh, plays if i've edited this correctly uh, what a fun season we're having, everyone! I, I really there's a lot of teams that are fun to watch. There are very basically very few teams are good at defending. Seems to be like there's a lot of chaos ball. Um, not everyone have gone full psycho ball like Newcastle, but there's there's Tottenham doing Tottenham things. Liverpool, you know, tremendous going forward, flawed at the back, all this sort of stuff. It's just a lot of games. There have been very few weekends this season where I've looked at like the docket they call it in America the the, the, the the list of the list of games and thought oh, this is a bit of a boring one. There's always stuff I'm looking forward to and we shouldn't take that for granted I'm old enough to remember when we had some really really boring teams in this league and there's very very few of them now and I appreciate that and uh, you know what else I appreciate? I appreciate you hanging out with me at the Lars Resort yet again. Hope we do more of that in the future everyone. Bye!